You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Coming up on the brew session, new decks with Vivian's Arcbow and Getaway Car. Then on the flashback, testing results with Heart of Kirin, Riel the Everwise, Humble Defector, and Ugin's Nexus. All that and more is coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Cave Dan Online. He is Dr. Daniel Schriever. Dan, the man, what is going on, my friend? Doing great, David. Happy Monday to you. Happy Monday to you as well. We're all surviving. We all made it through the weekend. Um, although, of course, we record this a little before the release date, so perhaps you guys were all destroyed by an, a yet unseen Meteorite. <laughs> no one's listening to this except for the aliens. <laughs> I'm trying to like imagine my mental state a couple days from now. Manifest a happy Monday for me. Yeah, there you go. Love it. That's the kind of optimism that's going to suffuse this entire podcast. Imagining <laughs> a more beautiful world that we all live in together. I don't know if you're just talking about our mission in general or these specific cars we're talking about today, but both <laughs> are extremely true. It should be both. So, yeah, today we are going to... First of all, we've been playing a bunch of different lists, a bunch of different brews. I've been experimenting with a bunch of different ideas in Pioneer. We've kind of not gotten to revisit some of those. Some of the decks were successful. Some were less successful. Um, we also had, want to talk about some of the also-rans, right? So we are in our second co-brewing experiment with the Serum Visions podcast, the car that won... The People's Poll, Resurgent Belief, uh, we talked about on Friday's podcast, and we're going to continue experimenting with for this entire month. But we don't want to forget the also-rans. The people that might have won had the vote count been uh, correctly audited. Uh, and those cards are Vivian's Arcbow and Getaway Car, which was a close finisher, I believe, in the previous poll. Is that correct, Dan? Yeah, Getaway Car came in fifth, I think, in the previous month. <laughs> getaway car is a miscongeniality. <laughs> Shout outs to Sandra Bullock. There's a deep cut there. You were trolling me for a 13 going on 30 reference in the last episode. Now you're quoting a miscongeniality to me. <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen 13 going on 30. I haven't seen miscongeniality. Um you know, that's not for me. That's uh, that's a that's a different target market. <laughs> like I haven't seen thirteen going on thirty for at least a month. But it was it was on recently. It's a pretty good show, pretty good flick. Who's the thirteen year old that she switches bodies with? Um, herself. Oh, like she just wakes up one day and is thirty. She's thirty, flirty, and thriving. I get it. So it's like big, but instead of one of the great charismatic stars of all time and Tom Hanks, we have. Jennifer Garner. (laughs) 
that that's beat. I'm not going to respond. <laughs> How dare you besmirch Jennifer's name? Shoutouts to Big though. Let's just get let's do a deep dive on Big one of these episodes. They find a uh, fortune telling robot at a uh, state fair that apparently can control how old you are, and no one just ever mentions it again. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, this kid like hooked up with a whatever thirty five year old professional, and like she's still friends with him. I, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> I, I need, we need a, a deep dive on Big. The morals, the moral ambiguity. Maybe I've never seen this movie because that does not ring a bell at all. You haven't seen Big? What the hell's going on around here? This is the one where he's like a kindergartner who dates a, his preschool teacher or something? No, he, he's like a 12-year-old who's kind of like slow to develop. And then he makes a wish at this like Zoltar, Zoltar machine and wishes that he was big. And he wakes up and he's Tom Hanks. So he's like a 28-year-old dude in a man's body. His mom freaks out because there's this like strange man in her house. And he has to like convince his best friend it's him, and then he goes and works at a toy store. And because of his like childlike wonder, he uh, you know wins over the the CEO with his sort of you know vision of how toys should be sold. Okay, maybe maybe I have seen that. Anyway, he starts dating like kind of a cynical corporate you know career woman. <laughs> they have like a really uncomfortable <laughs> love scene. <laughs> and if you're imagining a twelve year old, <laughs> how how long could that have lasted? Twenty seconds. <laughs> Wow. 13 seconds. <laughs> okay, so definitely not a six-year-old who becomes 28. A 12-year-old, totally different thing. That's fine. Well, it's 13 going on 30. I feel like the ages must almost be identical. I feel like they just said, let's make big, and we just reverse the... You know, sometimes they make a very similar movie, but they're just it's like an all-black cast instead, and it creates different tensions. This is just an, a female version of big. I think that came out first, though. I, I'm pretty sure that 13 going on 30 came out first. I think Big came out in like 1986. I don't know if Jennifer Garner had been born yet. <laughs> By the way, David, I gotta I gotta say, so you had mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our mailbag segment that you had these old list of movies. You went searching for them, haven't turned up yet, which is a shame. But you did put together, as promised, an initial list of underrated flicks from the 1990s. I think you had 13 on there. I did, yes. My goal was to do 13 for the 90s, 13 for the OOs. What are we calling them? The aughts? The, the naughties? <laughs> I don't know what we call the them. The aughts, the double O's, double O7s. And then the and then the tens or the teens or whatever you want to call those. It turns out that it was really hard to compile a list for the tens because basically the film industry, as we know, it started to collapse in 2015. Uh, but I, I might get to 13 there. And then in the OOs, I had so many, I think I've got like 20. So I'll, I'll have additional lists. Uh, for the the two decades following the 90s. But for right now, the 90s list, as Dan is saying, is, is posted in Discord. So was that meant to be like top 13 or is this just 13 you liked that met the criteria? I think you'd said couldn't have been nominated for any Oscars and also gross less than 50 million domestically, I think. Yeah, so these are leg- what I consider to be like legitimately great films. Not like movies I kind of liked or, oh, these are movies you should check out or the movies that fell through the cracks. These are legitimately great films that I don't think most people have seen. And I tried to also play pretty fair. Like in America, none of Miyazaki's movies have grossed a lot. But I feel like a lot of Magic players know a lot about anime, right? So I did not recommend, you know, one of my favorite movies um, from the 90s is Princess Mononoke. And the American gross of that is actually very small. I, but I feel like most people, and maybe the target market of magic is a lot of like young men who like animation, have probably seen Princess Mononoke. So I did not recommend it as like a quote-unquote like 
an unearthed gem, but if you made me create my top 10 list of the 90s, for sure Princess Mononoke would be in the top two or three because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, your list was like sophisticated, I think, but it was also still like very dudely. There were no chick flicks on there. And it made me think like, did you not grow up with like a big sister or anything? I did, but she loved uh, the sort of big, broad movies that were pitched to women. Um, okay, so like just Titanic a bunch of times. <laughs> I think her favorite movie of all time is, is 16 Candles. <laughs> so, you know, that was a movie she made me watch with her <laughs> when I was young. And I didn't quite get as much out of it as she did. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Also, I think it's worth noting, I mean, right now, I think we've got a way more diverse filmmaking uh, crew than we ever have, right? There's all kinds of, uh, you know, minority creators of TV shows and film and everything. That's the only positive output of the streaming era, in my opinion, is we finally get to hear from many more diverse uh, creative persons. The problem in the 90s, though, is that the vast majority of people that were being selected to tell stories were white men. So the best movies were going to be made by white men because they're the only people who are getting to make movies. Um, so most of the movies I selected are made from a male perspective because the vast majority of filmmakers were male. I mean, we we literally only had the first uh, Power of the Dog, right? Was the only, was the, the director Jane Campion was the only female director to ever be nominated twice. That just happened in 2022. It's, it's, it's ridiculous when you think about it. I did not realize that. Well, yeah, I saw there's a, a leak of their own getting spun off into a series on Amazon prime that's launching this week, actually. So pretty excited for that one smash hit from 1992, not underrated, properly rated. I think. Yes. I think, uh, the beginning of Tom Hanks, incredible run and uh, Penny Marshall definitely deservedly dined out on that movie for many a decade afterwards. <laughs> I don't know if you even made like only two or three more movies. It's like, all right, I just nailed it. Madonna was like somehow likable on t- on screen. That's, that's an accomplishment. She was great. I mean, it was yeah, like she was a awesome. perfect movie. Yeah. Shout out to Penny Marshall. Rest in peace. I'm hoping that the new series doesn't butcher this, but it's got Abby from Broad City, so. It, it's it's going to be worse than the movie. <laughs> I mean, when we cannibalize old properties, uh, you know, cannibalize is the word we're using very intentionally. I watched the trailer and every single scene in the trailer was a scene that happened in the original movie. So they're basically just taking the movie and, and stretching it out into a bunch of episodic series that's fine i'm here for it just give me a longer version of it so yeah if you're looking for movies that are like they almost everyone i recommend is pretty dark pretty edgy deals with the one of the topics that i'm very interested in was just like what does it mean to be a human being which i think is kind of like the purview of important films uh yeah i have 13 recommendations from the 90s that you might not have seen right so if you're looking for something kind of different when you watch these movies, don't have your phone on. Don't have a different uh, browser window up on your uh, computer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> suddenly my father is on the podcast with me. <laughs> watch the movie for real, man. If you if you don't demand a lot of yourself when you watch art, then you can't demand a lot of the art that you consume. That's how I feel about it. If you just want to like listen to music while you're like you know lifting weights or going for a run, that's fine. But then don't be like, oh man, why aren't there better bands today? It's like you're the reason. Yeah, it's the same as listening to magic podcasts. Get yourself in a meditative state, clear your mind, <laughs> deep breaths, focus on the cards, see the brews. Yeah, float in water, you know, in a chamber with no light. <laughs> <laughs> 
And we're going to talk about getaway car. For <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we got some suspect ones on here. These decks will not be as good as the movies that David is recommending, but that's fine. We're here for the journey. We're here for the experiment. And the first car we want to talk about is the runner up in this latest round of voting. Vivian's Arcbow is from War of the Spark. One in a green legendary artifact. Its only text is an activated ability. Pay X, tap it, and discard a card. Look at the top X cards of your library. You may put a creature card with converted mana cost X or less from among those cards onto the battlefield. Put the rest on the bottom in a random order. So I gotta say, David, I don't see what Mord sees in this card. I mean, he was very high on this. He rallied the troops. I mean, this almost overtook Resurgent Belief. A lot of people are excited about Vivian's Arcbow, and I do not understand why. So can you enlighten me? Yeah, so I also agree with you. <laughs> I remember reading this card the day it was spoiled, and all the notes under it were, you know, this card is broken, this card is... Um you know, whatever. There's There's been lots of green cards that search, right? We're talking about Green Sun Zenith. We're talking about... Um, uh, what's the band for mana artifact in modern? Birthing Pod. Birthing Pod. There's the green, green X card that was played in Devoted Druid. This was getting comparison to all these cards. The the green, green X card at the time was re- very good because Devoted Druid was the best card in modern. Excuse me, the best deck in modern. So Vivian's Arcbow, I was just like so excited to read it based on all these comments and i looked at it i was like what the hell (laughs) like you have to discard a card you don't ever get to cheat on mana because you have to pay the mana cost of the creature and then you might miss or you might spend six mana and only hit a three mana creature so yeah it's it's really an interesting card it asks a very interesting question of you but how to break it is is really tricky i think the reason that he might be excited about it is he is the master of these uh, sort of creature tutor packages in his 80 card Urian list where he finds these key creatures. He ends up with a ton of mana. And then this just goes looking for that key piece, right? And in modern, there's certain individual creatures that are so powerful against certain decks, right? And this is a card that kind of helps your consistency trying to find that, which is one of the big weaknesses of Urian uh, that, you know, maybe you don't see your cyborg cards as often. That probably is why he likes it, but... It's not a tutor, right? It doesn't search, and I can't get past that. No, and when you when and when you read people's description, they talk about it like it's a tutor. It's like, oh man, you play this on two, then you just leave your mana open, and you just like, you know, hit a reflector mage, and they play a creature. It's like, yeah, if reflector mage is in your top three, <laughs> what if it isn't? <laughs> right. So everything we're doing with the Arcbow requires us to have like a certain creature density pretty high density of creatures and not only that but they have to be at the right mana costs because you can only grab a creature that cmc is less than or equal to what you paid right so by definition you're just never going to get a deal on the creature you might be overpaying exactly as david's saying you might whiff it's like a collected company on a stick but you only get one creature at a time you're paying a lot for it and you're possibly getting nothing yeah you're you're selling me on it now though (laughs) Well, I just want to get all that out of the way because we're going to talk up the card now and like actually, yes. you know, yes. clear away the debris and try to build something from the ashes. But I just want to like get that off my chest before before saying nice things about the Arcbow. Yes. So what does Arcbow actually do for us? Like what's the advantage? So the thing I like about it is it comes down very early. So it gets under counter spells 
And against certain decks, especially I want to point out, Red Black is not playing Culligan's Command anymore. So if this resolves, you're going to be able to turn any random card into the you know best uh, creature in the top X cards of your deck. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it from a Pioneer perspective. It comes down before Counter Magic, and then none of the creatures it puts into play are susceptible to Counter Magic. And it's a permanent that right now, other than Blue-White getting to play you know four of... A portable hole there's not a lot of ways to actually uh destroy it that are currently being played in the format so as an engine piece that's reliable ish right you you go out of your way to build your deck around it you can at least imagine that it will stay in play that's a start and the thing i like about it is normally you say all right i'm building around this car but it sucks that it's legendary what if i draw a second one this gives you the out right this this is built in i'm going to turn that second vivian's arc bow i'm confident my opponent can't destroy it right they're playing mono blue spirits I'm confident that it's going to stay in play. I just turn that second Vivian's Arcbow into, you know, I pay four mana and tap this Arcbow, chuck that one and see what the top four of my library, you know, knock on your uh, library and, and see what uh, what you can find. That's the power of the card, right? This trading whatever the worst card in your hand is for the best creature in the top of your deck based on how much mana you have to spend. And that's powerful, right? That's like a looting, sometimes better than a looting, right? If you're actually... If playing at instant speed, if getting your own counter spells is is relevant or valuable, if you're going to play a long game where you're drawing a lot of lands, Arcbow makes sure you're adding to the board every single turn. And if there are creatures in Pioneer or Modern that are really good in certain matchups, this looks to your deck a chunk at a time, right? If, if there's a three mana creature you're looking for and you've got four mana up, you get to look at your top four on your turn plus your draw. And you get to look, look at your top four on your next turn plus your draw. So, I mean, you're talking about getting to cycle through a third of your deck in very few turns if there's a key card that actually stops your opponent. I'm not just saying a card that's good, right? It has to be, you know, whatever it would be, a Thalia-type effect against, you know, a Xerox list or, or, or uh, you know, whatever it might be, uh, a way to hate Graveyard against, you know, a Dredge-type of list. So if, if you can find the right creatures that are really good against certain archetypes, this does find them relatively quickly when you get to four or five mana you know, you're looking at six cards a turn, your draw plus the top five of your deck or whatever. Yeah, so you can see based on what we're describing that we're basically imagining that as long as Arcbow is in play, you're going to spend as much mana as you can just on the Arcbow. So that means you probably shouldn't have too many other cards in your deck that require additional mana investment. You want to like leave your mana free for doing this Arcbow thing every turn. Do you want to build in specific synergies with the Arcbow? Like, am I trying to use this as a discard outlet? Or am I trying to just trade a, a bad card for a creature? I was interested in the discard outlet aspect. I was trying to find a is there actually like a creature in Pioneer that is a resurrection effect? I think in modern you could think about um the uh, one with uh Echo. Three white white. It's two two pro black flying. Yeah, karmic guide. Yeah, a karmic guide like effect. I couldn't find a card that was even close to playable in Pioneer like that. But so you could imagine. I, now we're in magical Christmas land, but why not? We're we're ta- we're still in the brainstorming phase. No bad ideas. You could spend five mana, discard a you know powerful creature you want to get back. You're looking for karmic guide. If you if you had a, a bunch of replicative effects like that, where it would actually bring it back into play. You know maybe if you had a, four of a four mana version and four of a five mana version. You're, you're Now you have a ton of looks where you actually get to play that card plus the card that you dis- discarded. 
Hmm. So in a lesser version of that, the, the first list when we get to mine uh, that I want to talk about is Extraction Specialist. So that's a card that I'm very interested in playing in general. I've been really impressed with it the week we play with it. I thought it it's actually kind of underplayed. And that's a card that gives you a lot of creatures in play. I want to play mana creatures anyway. This gets there encouraged to kill mana creatures on turn two. So Extraction Specialist will often have a target to bring back. And then it's just a, you know, a generically powerful card to hit. And then when you discard your two mana card... Extraction specialists might bring it back. So that that's a that's not a full-on like synergy like I'm describing with um you know in, in modern, maybe if we could find enough pieces that did that, but that's at least like a little mini, a micro synergy that I, that I'm interested in exploring in Pioneer. All right, well let's take a look. No time like the present. So you've got a, a list sketched out for us here. It looks like you're in Bant colors, you're playing the Arc Bow, you're playing the Extraction Specialist. But why blue? Okay, specifically renowned weaponsmith so renowned renowned weaponsmith taps for two mana but it must be used to cast an artifact or use an artifact's ability so this is one of the few ways to actually cheat we just said you can't cheat with vivian's arcbow this is one of the few ways to actually cheat with vivian's arcbow it lets you dump more mana than you normally would be able to on a given turn into the arcbow so it lets you kind of jump the curve if you will Hmm. Um, and i've been really impressed i've been doing some various experimentation the decks haven't have been bad so I haven't not brought them up on the podcast, but playing mana creatures on two, including renowned weapons with, I've been experimenting with it really incentivizes them to kill the creature. Then you extraction specialist it back on turn three, and then your opponents in the bind, like do they leave you with a three, two lifelink or do they try once again to kill your mana creature? And if they don't, you're threatening to, you know, you've got six functional mana for an artifact on turn four, which can be play the arc bow and use it for four. That's, that's very powerful. So I've complemented that with a ton more ramp creatures. Four Sylvan Carry added. I think that's the best two-mana ramp spell. That's also a creature in the entire format. And then Tangled Florahedron. So that increases our creature density. Is another two-mana card that we can get back with Attraction Specialist. They're incentivized to kill. And if we miss, right, one of the things that's going to start happening in the late game is you're going to start discarding lands to dump like four mana into your arc bow. This is a way to like get our mana up. So next turn we can dump in five or six while we keep pitching lands to our graveyard. This is just like sort of another way to naturally hit our quote unquote land uh, for the turn. Interesting. Yeah, it kind of stands out as like, why are we playing these extra two mana ramp cards on top of Sylvan Curated and Weaponsmith? But that, that makes total sense. But let's go back to the Weaponsmith for a second here. If you get to untap with a Weaponsmith, you now have on your next turn your lands plus two additional mana available for casting artifacts, but it can't just be the arc bow, right? Like there's gotta be some other artifact payoff. Yeah, exactly. So I like to have eight, right? We talk about, so you have four arc bow. Verter's Gearhulk is my card of choice. Um, again, I, I talk about this a lot. I apologize for being pedantic. It, this is a card that dodges fatal push that we can make five toughness. So now it's a card that let's say they don't kill our weaponsmith. We can end the next turn with a 5-5 five, five Trample versus Gearhulk, and our Weaponsmith is now 4-6. That's just from two cards, right? So we've created like this huge board that's difficult to deal with with just one removal spell. And the Weaponsmith can tap every turn, and we don't have to attack with it if, if we don't want. So Virtus Gearhulk is also very good in a deck with Extraction Specialist because lifelink creatures are very powerful places to put a bunch of plus one, plus one counters on. Uh, we also have a bunch of mana creatures, right? So Renowned Weaponsmith, Tangled Florahedron, Thalia has First Strike. 
we're talking about a bunch of crappy creatures that we're playing because we want the mana for arc bow but in the late game all of a sudden vertus gearhulk you know is functionally a five mana four four that lets other creatures attack into their board or, or is a pseudo extra four four haste so i like that gearhulk getting to be your powerful top end I feel like that's not quite enough. Like between Extraction Specialist and Vertigo Gearhulk, they have basically have to carry you to victory because you've got a lot of mana creatures and arc bows besides that. So do they have any help? I mean, is this going to be enough to actually deal 20 damage? Yeah, so the the card I really want to hit is Dream Trawler. Uh, this is a card I've been experimenting with a lot. It's really hard for Fair Decks to beat it, and it's resistant to removal, and it's a flying creature. So having a flying blocker is really important against Spirits. You can put all the removal in your deck you want. You can play Fry. You can play Fatal Push. If you're just trading one for one, eventually they're going to get in a place where they start beating down with their whatever, the 2-2 two -two that lives or the 1-1 one -one that lives. As soon as you resolve a flying creature and a flying creature with lifelink, it's really, really hard to lose. So yeah, I mean, the plan of the deck is very simple. We are trying to function as a, just a simple ramp deck to get to the Vertus Gearhulk Dream Trawler, or we are trying to play Vivian's Arc Bow and dump a bunch of mana into that to find Vertus Gearhulk or Dream Trawler. Uh, Extraction Specialist is a very resilient threat that also is a de facto ramp spell because they're going to try to kill our mana creatures. We get to play four Thalia because our only non-land, excuse me, our only non-creature spell is Arc Bow. And then our three drops are just Extraction Specialist and then Removal, Skyclave Apparition, Reflection Ma Reflector Mage, Glasspool Mimic. One of Rydane, which is A, another creature that we can spend mana on the backside. Uh, or Rydane itself is is a, actually like a fine hate bear in certain matchups. And I couldn't resist one Fibblethip. If you hit Fibblethip with Vivian's Arcbow, you get to draw two. I mean, it's <laughs> kind of silly, but it's, you know, it's that's fine. You need to have a certain density of two drops because a lot of times you're going to just fire an Arcbow out for like three mana. And you want about 30 hits, I think for your top three to be something that's useful. So I think if I were going to test this deck, I would I would probably sacrifice something to just get more artifacts in there. Just because, like, on the occasions when I actually have the Weaponsmith on turn two and get to untap that, I, I want to be sure that I'm getting paid. And I feel like I'd sacrifice Thalia to do that. I don't know if that's the right card, but something. Get, like... A few more artifact hits, but the thing is they have to be artifact creatures because the Arc Bow demands that too, so it's actually not that many cards you can choose from. Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, the white one comes to mind, or, or maybe just like Reality Chip. Do either of these sound good? Uh, Reality Chip sounds good because Sylvan Carry Added exists, and Reality Chip lets you look at the top of your deck. Mm. Uh, so if you have to Arc Bow <laughs> for like two <laughs> mana, and you know that at least you're, you know, like let's say you have three mana up. Do I want to cast, you know, in a post-board game, do I want to cast Portable Hole and then do it for two, or do I want to do it for three? If I know that my top card's a three-drop, I just get to spend my three mana that way. So I'd be interested in maybe playing one of. You don't have to play the Charming Prince. You could cut a uh, Tangled Florahedron. Um, I, I would not cut the Thalias myself. I think the Thalias give you a ton of game one against Blue-Red, Blue white and um, the Lotus Field decks. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. But you know, they're, they're, I'm not saying these cards are like I'm playing a one of Scavenging Goose for Graveyard Eight. You don't need that in there. You could cut that very easily. You don't need to play fourth alleys. Maybe you could play three. You don't need to play Charming Prince. You don't need to play Fibblethip. So if you really want to slip some artifacts in there, those those are the slots that I would look to uh, look to adjust. 
Noted. All right, so that's a pioneer build of Vivian's Arcbow using a sneaky synergy with the renowned weaponsmith. Let's look at a couple more concepts because I imagine we're only going to spend <laughs> this one time <laughs> in my life thinking about the. I'm episode. excited about playing this list. I, I, I my my list that I'm proposing. If if I like it, I will play it. Oh, I'm I'm actually kind of excited to try it out. Oh, okay. Just in general, I don't know if Arcbow is the right shell, but like. Renowned Weaponsmith, Extraction Specialist, um, that's a thing. That's for sure a thing. I will be, I will be 5-0-ing with a list like that at some point. Okay, called shots. So other lists to consider. Briefly in Modern, you know, Mord is excited about the idea of Arcbow. I don't know about Arcbow in practice, but I think he's already tried a league with green-white devoted druid with Vivian's Arcbow, hearkening back to the glory days of green white druid before modern horizons i think laplace Jan had worked on like a build with four arc bows for a while and got like a couple five o's but i felt like arc bow didn't actually add anything to the list and we just never saw arc bow again after that so i, I see the list that mord played you know it's vizier Dru- devoted druid court of calling three arc bows some mana dorks he actually has a fourth arc bow which is not next to the other three and four arc bows. Okay, it's, well, yeah. His fourth chord of calling is also not near the other three chords in his freaking picture. What the hell's going on? Maybe he built it as a 60-card deck and was like, ah, screw it. Gotta go up <laughs> <Yeah>. to 80. <laughs> Get yep. the fourth arc bow in. A variety of creatures. Endurance, Skyclave Apparition, Grist, etc. Restoration Angel, Solitude. I mean, this is fine. I just I just don't quite see... Grist, super cool. Grist can be hit by Vivian's arc bow. Let's just mention that. That's not obvious. True. My issue here is I just don't see what Arcbow does for the deck. I think you really have to get a lot out of playing at instant speed here. Now, it is interesting that, like, that helps when you're playing a combo deck, creature-based combo deck. It digs for pieces. Devoted Druid adds a lot of mana. And especially if you, like, go infinite on mana with Vizier and Druid, then you just pour all your mana into the Arcbow to find something that wins the game from there. But not Walking Ballista, because that doesn't work. Uh, Duskwatch, yeah, what, Duskwatch what? Recruiter, I think you find. Okay, yeah, there you go. Yep. So so, so the Duskwatch is a one-of, right? So you, yeah, you assemble your combo, you make infinite mana, you either Cord for Duskwatch or you Vivian's Arcbow for Duskwatch. Arcbow for 60. <laughs> Get Duskwatch. <laughs> Put everything back and Duskwatch a bunch of times. Do you? How do you even win from there? Uh, you just wait for them to give up, I think. Yeah, you don't actually have a win, right? You can draw your creatures and play them all, but you don't win the game. Oh, you have a Shalai to go make your all your normal creatures. And I mean, you'll just time out. Just put one Ballista in here more. I, I don't know. What I Yeah. He posted this a while ago. He didn't say how the league went, so I assume it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'll say about this deck for now. Yeah. Um, but let's... Let's go back to the drawing board. So yes. dipping back to Pioneer, where I think we're going to spend the rest of our energy this episode, a couple of the Arcbow enthusiasts, the Arcbow partisans in the vote, uh, went ahead and posted some of their ideas, and I noticed that several people were interested in werewolves. Flash, werewolves, and the idea here is that once you have Arcbow in play, you are not actually casting spells, right? You're just activating the Arcbow. Yeah, I mean... I think when the card came out, people thought it would be really good with Flash creatures. I am not of that opinion. I see you've got a Star City Games link. Uh, I don't know who it is writing about this card, but they have the same thought. Is 
Yes, Arcbolt functions at instant speed, but I don't think you want the rest of your deck to do so because flash creatures typically give you a little bit less bang for your buck. So I like that with Werewolves, most of those cards are not flash, right? Werewolf Pack Leader, Kessig mm -hmm. Naturalist. They benefit if you pass with all your mana up, but they are—they uh, give you enough for the mana cost. And Kessig Naturalist giving you mana that enters your mana pool uh, and you don't lose it. So you can put that into the Arcbow after the attack, let's say. I like that as well. So I, I think that's super cool. I, I like Kessig Naturalist as maybe a natural way to just kind of... Hmm. Like Arcbow is a cool place to just dump all the extra mana that you might generate from that. Yeah, I'm looking at a few different builds from Judge Rob, a basic red-green werewolves, and then a version splashing black for Graveyard Trespasser, and I think he also had a version splashing white. I can't recall what the white was for. Kessig Naturalist, you know, you don't see it that often, but it is powerful. What's the payoff? Well, flipping your werewolves is good, right? You've got Tovalor, Dire Overlord, uh, the Reckless Stormseeker. If you're in the black version, you got the Graveyard Trespasser. Nightpack Ambusher, probably the best payoff right like there if you don't cast anything on your turn you're getting free value every turn buffs your wolves the card quality seems strong here yeah i mean my concern with the ambusher though is if you don't have vivian's arcbow in play you don't really get to cast any other spells if you want to get your free wolf because there's so few instants so like you know i play my elf i play my uh tovalar and then on turn four i play night pack ambusher as a instant speed or whatever on their end of turn now on my next turn almost every other card in my deck is sorcery speed so if i want to add to the board and play uh you know reckless storm seeker i cannot do that if i want my free wolf so there's a lot of tensions here I, and uh, you know i think it, it'll just take some play testing to figure out exactly what the payoffs are i see in the black splash list uh i like the bone crusher as a removal spell that still can be a hit for arc bow i think that's really clever but I get nervous about like multiple Culligan's commands, multiple Riveteers charms um, that aren't hits for Vivian's Arcbow. And I don't know that they're powerful enough to justify their inclusion uh, when your deck is mostly creature focused. Right. I think the, the clean red green version does play collected company as well. And I think you should just think about your Arcbow decks as company decks. Yes. Uh, we know yep. that you need uh, 26 creatures, bare minimum. And if some of those are mana dorks, you should probably go up to 28 or maybe even 30, just because you, you want to get something good off your company. And I think it's the same with Arcbow, right? You you want density of creatures. You don't want to whiff. You don't want your stuff to be all over the mana curve. You want to keep it pretty concentrated so that, you know, it's all going to fall within the range of like three, maybe four mana. Yeah, and, and maybe, you know, just as an exercise, now, of course, I, I want to go all in. That's my Bruce. I want to explore a card, but... You might start with like a four collected company, two Arcbow, right? They're almost like company five and six in terms of their value. And then you don't play any four drops, or maybe you play like one, five, or six drop, right? When you get into the late game, if that you're really searching for like some some big hammer. Yeah, that's a good approach. I'm looking at another list here from our Discord from Pugs on Chairs. It's again trying to exploit werewolves. It's just black green. And they've actually settled on Howl Pack Piper, four copies of that, and that's actually pretty cute. I haven't seen that since draft. <laughs> do you know this card? I do not know this card. Is this the one that puts card it cheats cards into play? It is, yeah. So uh werewolf. Because of course the original Elvish Piper is how I'm guessing. That's the throwback, which also costs four mana. Four mana, two two, and the Howl Pack Piper actually can't be countered. Activated ability 
two mana, tap it, put a creature card from your hand into play, and then you also get to untap the Piper if you put a Wolf or Werewolf in. But what's powerful about this card is that whenever it transforms from day into night, or if it enters on the night side, you get to look at your top six cards, take a creature, put it into your hand. So just having a Howlpack Piper passing the turn with it, not only do you flip to the more powerful 4-4 Wildsong Howler, but you go up a creature, right? You look at your top six and get something else good. It's interesting. I mean, obviously, four mana for a 2-2 is... You're setting yourself up for some... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> some stomp town but whenever stomp results yeah population you I, I i like this idea though so so you play arc bow you're trying to arc bow for four to eot Hellpack piper and then in theory that lets you cheat something into play i'm wondering if there's like super sweet cards we could get paid off for like that where the two man is almost cheating on the cost so what's the most expensive wolf or werewolf we could play that's kind of interesting to me Hmm. I know there was a, a five mana werewolf. Tovalar's Huntmaster, Averbrook Caretaker. Yeah, okay. Caretaker. Like I'm interested in like, you know, of course. I want to push it all the way. So I think this is a super interesting concept, and I, I would certainly keep like the graveyard trespasser and the maybe the werewolf pack leader, but I'd want to have like a top end that maybe isn't night pack ambusher that's instead maybe like, you know, some of the six mana werewolf the one that makes humans and stuff when it comes into play or wolves when it comes into play that um Winota used to play yeah the hunt master yeah so that i think that's cool and then in the late game when you've got mana hunt master is what you're looking for with your um with your bow okay yeah just something to think about I, i'm not saying i have not played this list maybe uh pugs on chairs awesome name by the way uh has had a ton of success with this already but my instinct when I see a, a card like Hullpack Piper, which you describe maybe the worst case scenario, we play it for four, our opponent stomps it on, on end of turn, right? And we're, we're never winning that game. So when I do untap with it, I want that to be like a really devastating turn. And if it can put in, you know, a 6-6 six, six wolf plus two wolves, and I don't have to play a spell that turn so I can go to dark or go to night as we pass to our opponent. That's the kind of thing I'm, I'm, I'm looking to do. Yeah, exactly. All right, so that's a brief exploration of Vivian's Arcbow. Maybe when Mord comes back next week, he can set the record straight and show us the path, but... <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So let's shift gears again. Talk about the getaway car. Little VW buggy or PT Cruiser or something. It's a weird-looking car, I gotta say. Three-mana vehicle from New Capenna. 4-3 haste. Crew 1. 4-3 haste, crew 1. Whenever a getaway car attacks or blocks, return up to one target creature that crewed it this turn to its owner's hand. So you don't have to do this, right? But if you did crew with a one-power creature that you want to bounce, you get to do so when you successfully attack or block with a getaway car. Yeah, randomly putting this on block, of course evokes memories of smuggler's <laughs> copter i don't know how often you're blocking with your 4-3 haste uh, vehicle but it's worth knowing that you can do so you don't have to attack um but yeah i think the, the thing that strikes you is three mana for a 4-3 haste is very aggressively costed there aren't any three mana 4-3 haste we get to just naturally play okay so that's telling us that's yeah we're playing a slightly above rate creature as long as we're investing in crew but then you have this bounce ability, which seems like at odds with 
the four three haste angle, right? Like I'm trying to get in there with little questing beast cars. Am I really trying to bounce my creatures? So like where where do these things meet? How do we put this together? Yeah, and I can't say that I've solved the riddle myself. I mean, I have not played any games with this card yet, but of course your instinct is to play cards that are relatively cheap to bounce. They give you something, right? So maybe in the early game, you don't bounce a creature. You'd rather have the body in play and and mana is tight. But in the late game, you're bouncing your, you know, card that cycles or card that uh, destroys their permanent or something. And and it's functionally drawing you a card, right, is, is the thought process. Oh, that's true. So you do not have to balance a one power creature. It's crew one, but you can crew with anything. If you want to replay your yeah. giant, you can. If you Yeah, if you have seven mana in play and, and you've got agent of uh, treachery, right? Uh, you crew up your getaway car, attack them, bounce your agent, and you can and you can replay it. But I think the default, the default mode you should think about is what deck wants to play this on three and attack. Right, so that means we have to, we want to have a creature in play, so we should be playing a creature on one and two, so we're resistant to removal spells, and then we're going to play this and attack with it. That that should be the goal of your deck. The bouncing thing is is a possible benefit in the late game, but I don't think that's why you want to be playing this. There's lots of bounce effects, especially in modern, that are much more powerful than this because they blink, they don't bounce. Uh, you don't want to fall in love as we'll talk about when we talk about the uh, uh, Mardu defector list with uh, with generating value in this way. It's, it's- <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my one drops, I assume Thraben Inspector or Valdaran Epicure are my best options. I see you got both in the first list here. Yeah, so the first place I started was red-white list. So we're playing Thraben Inspector, Valdaran Epicure. Obviously, again, we don't have to blink them every time, but they Valdaran Epicure especially is good in our aggro deck. Doing a damage each time. The blood is useful. Because we have so many artifacts, uh, Toolcraft Exemplar becomes interesting. So you could, like, turn one, Toolcraft Exemplar. Turn two, Portable Hole, Voldar and Epicure. Turn three, Gateway Car. You know, crew it up, bounce your Voldar and Epicure. You know, you've done 13 damage with a Voldar and Epicure coming on your next turn. You know, that's quite good. The other card that I'm really interested in is Luminarch Aspirant. Uh, Luminarch Aspirant can stay at one power, still crew getaway car, but then it gets to pump it. And pumping getaway car is awesome. It's uh, resistant to lots of the red removal as soon as it gets to four toughness. Uh, Lots of removal that kills four toughness creatures is sorcery speed. Uh, You don't have to crew it in the face of like a fatal push or something. You can sort of force them to spend their removal spells on your toolcraft exemplar, Luminarch Aspirants. And then another card I'm, I'm somewhat interested in at least thinking about is Magda Brazen Outlaw. Hmm. It uh, pumps our Toolcraft Exemplar. It can tap to crew getaway car. You can even, let's say it's late game, you can tap Magda, crew getaway car, bounce Magda, play it again, and then crew getaway car at end of turn. You can get two treasures in a turn that way from one Magda if you wanted, if the fifth treasure was... Because hey. was, uh, okay. you can crew a, you can overcrew yeah. it any time. So th- that True. that's kind of interesting. Maybe, maybe this list is only has two Magda. Maybe it's actually worth it to go like way more in on that that aspect of it. If you're playing a bunch of Oldar and Epicure, I like the idea of not having to cast a lot of spells and win. Like let's say Getaway Car hits them a couple times, Toolcraft Exemplar hits them once. I like playing like Fiery Temper, Shrapnel Blast. I'm not exactly sure what the numbers need to be there. Um, where you don't have to resolve that many more spells through the last points of damage. There's a lot of artifacts hanging around if we've got Draven Inspectors and Boulder and Epicure. So Shrapnel Blast seems very interesting to me. Again, you mentioned Bone Crusher Giant. We can shock, 
Play Bone Crusher Giant Crew Getaway Car. We can always blink it if we need to shock again. That's super mana intensive, right? We, that's not something we really want to do. But yeah, you can tell I, 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 there's lots of ideas here. I haven't really like parsed it out in the exact list that I want, but the, those cards are, are what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about Getaway Car. Yeah, I think Bone Crusher and Extraction Specialist make sense as powerful three drops that benefit from getting bounced. And you have room for some in this list. Maybe there needs to be more. I'm not sure. I guess it depends on how successful this deck is at actually getting the jump on people. Your two slot is where you have to choose between like reliable creatures, like Rafine's Informant, right? You have four of that here. That does a little bit every time. It doesn't do enough, right? You, do you want to maybe swing for something higher, like uh, Ingenious Smith would be another example. I don't know if like we've met the threshold of artifacts, but that would be a powerful card. Maybe instead of Magda, we want, what was the other dwarf? The pilot, the 3-1 pilot that scries to. Like, bouncing that lets you find more gas. These are the slots you have to play with. I think the, the one slot feels locked to me based on how you've described the play pattern. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And then, you know, if you're not playing Rafines in format, you don't have enough discards, so then you don't want to play Fiery Temper. Then maybe you want to go all in, like, four Shrapnel Blast, three Magda, cut the Rafines Informants, you know, play some more of those dwarves like you're talking about, and then maybe, like, one top-end uh, Embercleave to be able to tutor. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a ton of ways to build it. I, I think there's something there. Like you said, I, li I like the 16-1 drops. I like some number of Magda, and I like four Luminar Aspirant, and then four Getaway Car, and then how many Bone Crusher Giants, how many Extraction Specialists, how many Shrapnel Blasts. Do you want to play the Informant Fiery Temper Package or not? I don't think this is a deck that wants Fable, even though I think it is one of the better red cards in the format. Uh, Fable is is a very mid-rangey card, and I think we want our opponent to be on the back foot uh, for most of the game. I don't think we can afford to play a longer game. So I mentioned Ingenious Smith, and... There, you do need to have a critical mass of artifacts. That's a problem that you've tried to solve in your, your next getaway car build, where you do have four smiths. Yeah, so when some of our artifact sources are no longer Valdar and Epicure, and we're actually playing artifacts, then our number for getaway smith or ingenious smith goes up. So four portable hole, four Thraben Inspector, four, four Toolcraft Exemplar, four Moon Snare Prototype, a one of Shadow Spear, and then Lion Sash as again, an artifact uh, for a smith or toolcraft exemplar. Um, that also is a graveyard hate piece that extraction specialists can get back if they kill it. Again, I think four Luminarch Aspirin is awesome. Four Smith is cool because Smith you know, kind of plays the two-way game. It can be a value card that's drawing cards every turn if you want, or it can be a card that grows. Uh, you know, every every turn you're playing a Thraben Inspector, you're making your you know Ingenious Smith better. You're not just getting an extra uh, a clue. So Ingenious Smith can be a card that getaway car blinks. You know, if it's only 1-1 one, one already, why not just play it, blink it, play it again? Now it's a value engine. Or is it a card that getaway car is turning on by blinking a Thraven Inspector every turn? It's actually making making sure we always have, have a new artifact to hit with it. So that part makes sense. The card that I don't quite understand is the Moonsnare prototype. Because I think of that as a ramp card. And I'm not sure that this is a ramp deck, right? Like, shouldn't we be playing more creatures instead? Yeah, my thought process there is we're going to have all these like clues lying around and I want to be able to use the mana. The clue is what we're going to tap with the Moonsnare prototype is the thought process or the or the portable hole. Mm -hmm. So it's basically like almost replacing lands. We could even cut lands like we could go down to like 21 or 20 lands. 
And then like Moonsnare Prototype lets us like hit our land drop while adding artifacts to the board. Uh, and then in the late game, the the rem it's it's like a de facto removal spell that can get rid of almost anything. But yeah, you might be right that it's just like not the right card, and maybe we need to just find a creature there. The problem is the artifact count gets a little low for Ingenious Smith if we're not playing an artifact in that slot, and there isn't a great artifact creature at that cost. Well, I'm gonna suggest a one mana artifact creature, Network Disruptor, one one flying ETB taps a creature. I mean, do you think that could? be the card that would like fulfill the rules like it crews the getaway car punches through for damage rebuying it later in the game is actually not that bad yeah i don't i don't hate it that's not terrible you say it flies one one flying when network disruptor enters the battlefield tap target permanent so it actually taps lands too if you need that it's mainly there to enable ninjas but i mean yeah it crews the getaway car yeah it's not um it's not crazy. I'll say that. I'm interested. If you're if you're selling some stock, I'm interested in purchasing some of it. <laughs> yeah, buy buy low and then forget about it. Forget we had this conversation. Other cards I'm somewhat interested in. I actually think Fleet Wheel Cruiser is a little underplayed. The turn it comes into play, it's just a five three haste for four mana. We have a bunch of two power creatures that can easily crew it. And Baron Talarian Archmage isn't great. It's much worse than Extractor Mage, but it is cool that it actually draws a card every time Getaway Car moves, puts a card back in your hand. So it's like a crazy value engine. Uh, so if you play Baron Talarian Archmage, you bounce your opponent's, uh, you know, whatever. Kalidus. You crew up Getaway Car with Raven Inspector, return it to your hand. Not only do you get to replay with Raven Inspector, you also draw a card at the end of turn from Baron. That's really good, right? That's like a super powerful mana war. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you don't want to fall too much in love with like getting this value from your getaway car because the whole point is you're attacking with this 4-3 haste. And so I think if you get too far away from that, like you play a bunch of barons and you play a bunch of mm. one mana cards that blink, like you're having to expend a lot of mana to get your value out of it. Like Thraven Inspector is not actually drawing you a card unless you're tapping two mana to, to sack the clue that's that's what attracted me the moonsnare prototype so I, we can actually like get those turn those cards into something where moonsnare prototype is tapping the, the clue itself is, is worth a mana almost with a moonsnare prototype in play but again maybe i just have like the math wrong or it's not going to play out that well in my hand hmm. but you can again so you can tell this blue white list does not have direct damage so it's much more value oriented and it's trying to kind of you know go over the top with ingenious smith as another two mana card that draws a card and is a threat. So I'm not exactly sure which build I think is better or more exciting, but I, I you can tell like there's something there. And I, I think the cards, Portable Hole, Thraben Inspector, Toolcraft Exemplar, Luminarch Aspirant, Getaway Car. That's a shell that we can put stuff around and what those specific cards are are not known right now. Not known by me. Yeah, two lists with Getaway Car is pretty good, I think. Certainly more words spent analyzing it than <laughs> any other podcast is doing. Maybe for good reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But all right. So we promised the getaway car lists last month and we finally delivered on that. Will we play them? I'm not sure, but I'm intrigued. What we have been playing over the last few weeks is some other weird miscellaneous decks. These are all in Pioneer. David, you've been working overtime, right? 
trying out <laughs> this and that card. Some we talked about, some we haven't. And I think to close out today, we want to just review some of those results because you've had some pretty promising leagues. Yeah, so the first list I want to talk about is a Grixis list. The The key card I wanted to try out was Heart of Kirin. So my thought process when I was messaging Dan about it on, on a lunch hour was the following. Heart of Kirin is really good against sorcery speed removal because at the time, lots of strangles were being played. So it's great against strangle. I talked earlier about how important it is to have flying blockers. So it's really, really good against spirits. And then it's good against sweepers. I was lose, losing to, you know, the eventual, even with Thalia or whatever, they draw their, their sweeper and they sweep the board. If you can just play a card and just attack with a hasted heart, um, that's quite good. So I was like, it seems good against blue-red because it blocks Phoenix. And it actually takes a lot of connive triggers until your shredder is big enough to attack through my heart. So with that as a starting point, I said, all right, what is the easiest way to sort of crew this up? And I was like, we actually have a new three-mana Planeswalker, Kaido Shizuki. I was very excited about that when it was spoiled. Kaido actually works very well with it. Turn two heart, turn three Kaido minus it. Crew up the heart. Heart is very likely to be able to attack freely, right? We expect on turn three, there's not a bigger flying creature in play than heart. And then we get to plus Kaito to draw a card. It's just so then it, it literally is a three mana Planeswalker plus one draw card. That card does not exist in any format. And then for the rest of the game, it basically gets to do that. It, it never goes up in loyalty. So it's basically a zero mana draw card on a, on a three mana Planeswalker. And it is crewing the heart for free the whole time and, and can crew the heart again without having to tap a creature uh, to block. Once I got to that point and I was like, all right, I want to play Grixis, then I just filled in with what I thought the best two mana, three power creatures were, which are Blood Tithe Harvester and Tenacious Underdog. At three mana, Graveyard Trespassers at three mana, three, three. Three Bone Crusher Giants. I've not been liking that card very much, so I only played three. Two Royal Scions just to have kind of, you know, we know that Royal Scions, it's really only good in this list specifically with Heart, but it's actually interesting with Graveyard Trespasser. It lets it get in attacks sometimes where it wouldn't, especially against Mono Green. And then because we have all this looting with Kaito, Blood Tithe Harvester, uh, and Royal Scions, I put a one of Riel in. And then instead of the fourth Bone Crusher, I put a one of Chandra. Again, it is another Planeswalker that can crew up heart for uh, for no mana. And then your normal removal package. Four Thoughtsies, four Strangle, two Dreadbore, uh, one Strangle, 23 lands. Yeah, I was excited for this list. The return to glory of Heart of Kirin. A terror in standard back in the Gideon days, but you just haven't seen it in forever. It was usually paired with white creatures. We were just talking about Toolcraft Exemplar, and I was like, oh, Heart of Kieran, maybe maybe that's the missing piece for that Ingenious Smith build. Get some hotshot mechanics in there to get the artifact density up. Here, you're, you're taking it a totally different direction, right? Grixis with some Planeswalkers. So when you play this in a league, what happened? It felt really good. The The deck did exactly what I thought. I beat Lotus Field very easily. I beat Mono White Humans. Uh, I just drew a zillion cards with Riel against them, which was crazy. Uh, just When you plus Kaito with Riel in play, it's just better than a draw card. You get to loot and then draw again. Like You just tear through your deck. I found all four of my fatal pushes because I was seeing like three cards a turn. Uh, I beat Blue Red Drakes very comfortably. Uh, I have an awesome picture of me Notion Thiefing. Uh, where they have <laughs> two ledger shredders in play and they're casting a crackling drake to trigger them. I have four mana open with a notion thief. Oh <laughs> no. And the best part is on my turn, because Kanive is a may, I intentionally just cast, cast two spells. So they just discard their hand and I draw two. Uh, notion thief is just a crazy card against uh, shredder. 
Um, lost to Mono Red. I actually forgot to add Cletus to my Mana Traders. I think I just added like a random Duress to the sideboard. It kind of caught up to me there. And then I beat uh, Red Black, so which is kind of like the mirror, if you think of it that way. You know, a lot of the lists I've been proposing of late have some of the similar shell of Red Black, and then I just, you know, as a mid-range, one of the master mid-range brewers of the format, I just tech out my deck, so I'm always better than Jund. <laughs> it's sort of like when the podcast started, right? We just brewed up Niv, we just built like a better Jund, and then sideboarded to like beat the the pullers or ends of modern <laughs> sort of what i've been you know that's sort of the project i've, I've really been working on in, in pioneer so other than losing pretty convincingly to mono red and i don't think we can be that bad with like four main deck trespasser four main deck push uh you know i think there's just a few tweaked sideboard cards we should be okay there the list actually felt really good it, it just beating red black just comfortably in in the game i did not mull twice just one easily just resolve a three-mana Planeswalker. And again, my rule of thumb is if you complete your second two-for-one, excuse me, your third two-for-one against red-black, you've just won the game. You can cast more spells if you want. Just offer the right hand. Like, it's been good. They take so long to kill you. Uh, they really struggle to kill hearts. You don't have to crew it up into a fatal push if you don't want. And three-mana Planeswalkers are just a nightmare for them. They don't put pressure on them very easily. And you just set up these scenarios where you run away with the game, so... Yeah, the list felt awesome. I, I'm actually excited to, to try it again. The one thing that's interesting to me is we're not playing a lot of blue cards. And the Planeswalkers only felt good with Heart of Kirin. So could we build a red-black list? And then we'd be looking at like the mono-red three-mana Chandra and the black Liliana. Or we could main deck Obnixilis, although we don't have great targets to sacrifice. It's not clear to me you need the blue, although... There obviously were scenarios throughout the, the league where the blue would just generate a ton of card advantage for me. Maybe the deck wants to be more aggro and just be like all in like multiple obnixilis, like plus obnixilis, minus it with hard attack it in. So that that's something to maybe explore. Yeah, only six blue cards in the main. That could easily become something else. The ratio of creatures to disruption, right? So you are playing... Four Thoughtseize, four Push, one Strangle, two Dreadboard. That's a ton of spells, right? And then you're also playing pretty aggressively slanted creatures, the Heart of Kirins and a bunch of creatures that can crew it. Three or four power each. It's almost like a tension there, right? But did you feel like when you were playing this that it made sense, right? Like you weren't just like, oh, I, I have two creatures and I really wish I drew another one, but I drew this Push and Thoughtseize instead. No, I mean, luckily your Planeswalkers just have the ability to kind of find the right stuff, right? They, if you want to think of them as like fables, right? They're just filtering through your deck all the time. Like Kaito is looting or making 1-1 one, one and then drawing. The Royal Scions, if you have a creature, is pumping it. If not, it's just looting, right? And and it's just a different kind of threat. I mean, I ultimated my uh, Royal Scions against Red Black because I just got kept finding the right card every turn. Uh, and there's nothing they could do about it. I did end up drawing a ton of cards with Riel throughout the league. So either that means like, I think Riel is really good, but maybe everything just lined up well for Riel to be a, an insane uh, value card. That probably isn't typical, but it, it, it felt like maybe just through sheer luck, the, the ratio ended up very perfect. And the looting is, is even great because Heart of Kirin is a legend, right? If it feels like they're not going to kill it, it's just very easy card to loot away and turn into anything else. Yeah. And Tenacious Underdog. Tenacious Underdog can always come back from your graveyard. I, I brought it back one time just to crew a heart to do lethal damage. Oh, nice. And you have three lands, and they all have enough power to crew heart if that's what you need. The Both hives and the den. 
So you only played one Riel in this build. Maybe the secret is to play more copies of Riel. So your the next build <laughs> that you talked about, kind of a dedicated Riel brew around deck. Although here, I think you'd initially propose what three, maybe four copies of Riel, and you you landed on two in the final version. Yeah, so I wanted to build a deck that was resuscitating Damon's favorite archetype. He was really excited to play all these 1Ks with the blue-red control shell. And that shell was playing like four Narset and then like three Collected Defiance, maybe one Days Undoing. I can't remember the exact ratio. But of course, it played four Expressive Iteration. And he felt like losing Expressive Iteration there was actually a huge loss. The the blue-red Phoenix list can play, you know, various other looting effects, is it charm, etc. But, you know, without that way to find the pieces he didn't feel like the deck was good enough so you know i wanted damon to be happy we all want uh, damon to be satisfied in this world so i i was thinking to myself like man collected defiance is of course great with narset you target your opponent with the draw maybe you kill a creature at the same time but it's actually really good with real <laughs> you can target yourself with the loot you double your hand size and at the same time it's a removal spell and four damages you know kind of irrelevant size it kills Cletus, it kills um, a thing in the ice, et cetera, et cetera, a, a ledger shredder that's connived. So I basically, I was playing three Narset, two Riel, three Collected Defiance. And at the top end, you know, I talked about the first build of this. I wanted something that allowed me to win the game. And I was playing four Bone Crusher. I said, this felt wrong. I don't like Bone Crusher. You had proposed a few ideas. So I said, all right, let's go four Crackling Drake and then two Fable of the Mirror Breaker. And that's all I'm going to need to win the game. If I, if I can just delay them with this sort of Narset Riel thing, Crackling Drake is just going to end the game quite quickly. I remember suggesting the Fable because that, that felt on theme with the Riel looting. I don't remember suggesting Crackling Drake, and actually I don't quite see how it fits. Is it just that you feel like you have enough instance and sorceries to make it powerful, so why not? Yeah, I mean, basically, the, the Crackling Drake is just a value card. So... You're playing all these cards that almost require like multiple answers from your opponent, and then it's attacking from all these different angles. When they see blue red list, they try to attack your graveyard. Well, no card in your in my list cares about the graveyard except for Riel, kind of. But they still need to kill it. It's not like killing the graveyard means they can just leave Riel around. And then Crackling Drake just draws a card and then wins like on the following turn. So you, once you do the like Narset thing, you need a way to end the game. And the thought process in my mind was we just once we start doing that, we just resolve Drake, try to kill him that turn. If it doesn't work, resolve Drake next turn. And we just start ripping through our, our deck. So yeah, you did not recommend Drake, but you said like, oh, Bone Crusher Giant probably just isn't the right card. And that that is correct. As soon as I cut Bone Crusher Giant, this deck really felt good. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like you had a 4-1 with the initial build, but you took this updated build. How did that do? I 4-1'd again, but it felt awesome. I only lost a uh, red-black mid-range top decked Invoke Despair uh, on the last turn they had in the game to kill me. Mm. Other than that, I would have I 5-0'd. Um, yeah, just a reminder. So this deck is playing the whole blue-red package with Ledger Shredder, but instead of playing any of the Delve cards, we're playing four Sensor and Riel and Fable um, as sort of like these smoothing cards with... Crackling Drake being the best card in the entire format, probably, to copy with Fable other than Transmogrify targets. And then Sensor being a card that lets you transition to that turn three where you Shredder plus Trigger Connive. So your ideal curve is like Sensor on two, whatever they're doing, Ledger Shredder plus a spell uh, to Connive, then Riel 
trigger it again. Like, and then, but then you're now you're going up cards with your, your Shredder Riel. And then after that, you're in the place where like Collective Defiance Narsec can happen or Crackling Drake. So it, it's just a way to transition where we're not as proactive as the blue-red decks, but we actually have the ability to handle some of the bigger threats. Like I've, I was able to censor because Mono Green plays everything right on curve. You could handle cards that Mono Red normally can't handle because you can like censor Kiora, whereas the blue-red shell that exists right now just has to let Kiora resolve and then hope to either kill it or kill them. It does the main thing that I want is we're not just playing this because it's cute and Riel's kind of whatever. We're actually changing the matchup. Like Mono Black is really bad against us, even though of course it's the one deck that won, but like they exiled my graveyard multiple times and this deck does not care about that. Whereas against Blue Red, it would have been devastating uh, that we had no graveyard. Any, you know, dig through time or delve effects would have been stuck in my hand. So I like that we're, we've changed the build and it changes our matchup spread to, to actually fight against the normal sideboard plans for decks like this. Still feels weird to me to not play at least some delve spell not even four copies just some yeah i'm not sure this is i'm not sure this is right you can see my notes here are we just doing this on hard mode like just obstinately not playing delve spells so riel can be a little better i don't know um <laughs> but like yeah riel with shredder is absolutely insane like you just draw so many cards i mean you can see all these screenshots i've got like i've seen 15 to 16 more cards than my opponent uh you just start tearing through your deck fable was actually insane so I think the proposed version I would have going forward is to cut some of the uh, Narset Collective Defiance, like maybe one of each, and just play the full four Fable. Fable's awesome if you have Riel in play. They actually have to kill Riel first. Otherwise, you get to draw five cards on that next turn. If they're spending a removal spell on Riel, they're often having to spend a removal spell on the 2-2 that it makes. Now they have to spend a removal spell for the flipped Fable because it might target uh, Crackling Drake when it comes into play. You just put a ton of pressure on their uh, removal. They can't let anything stick around for a turn or you get a ton of value out of it. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so we're thinking Narset is not actually crucial for this, right? So cut the Narsets. Cut a Narset or two. I'd still maybe like leave one or two around, but uh, I just don't be all in on it. Like I have three Narset, three Collective Defiance here. I'd maybe go down to like two Narset, two Collective Defiance, four Fable. And we'll sneak in a couple, let's say, dig through times. You know, delve in the graveyard is fine. If Riel has zero yeah. power, that's fine. Yeah. So you could maybe like cut a collective defiance and put a dig through time. You could cut a Narset, play another dig through time. And then, yeah, maybe now we're cooking with gas. Okay. So another successful outing for Is It Riel on its second or third version? Yeah. Shifting gears, we talked about the card Humble Defector three weeks back, I want to say. We were interested in Extraction Specialist, a card that has really started to impress on a lot of different decks. Pairs beautifully with Charming Prince, and completing that little triangle, you have Humble Defector, which also pairs nicely with Charming Prince, and Extraction Specialist can get back the Defector when it inevitably bites the dust. So I decided to test out uh, one of your builds, the Mardu one, where you're taking that core of Charming Prince, Extraction Specialist, Humble Defector, and saying, okay, what else plays nicely with the Humble Defector effect, right? Here you're looking for ways to maybe sacrifice a Defector before it switches sides, right? You just hold priority, activate it, draw two. You still have time to eat it with Village Rights, for example. Draw a bunch of cards. You're drawing four cards there. You can get back that Defector later with Extraction Specialist. 
it seemed to make sense. Um, Claim the Firstborn is another card that we've seen paired successfully with Village Rights in like the Obnixilis decks and Pioneer. Claim the Firstborn, Village Rights, that also seems to work with the Defector, right? Activate Defector, give it to them, immediately claim it back, tap it again, draw more cards. They get the Defector, yes, but you just drew a million cards. And the final cute piece of tech in this deck was three copies of Butcher of the Horde, the Mardu Siege Rhino. Um, <laughs> another sacrifice outlet to do tricky stuff with your defector. And we also have uh, young pyromancers here just to get more board presence, get more fodder, and amass you know the, the critical resources to actually win the game. Yeah, so you took this one out into the uh, league, Dan, and how did it uh, treat you? Well, it's been a while. I'm just looking at my notes here. It looks like O two, O two, O two, one two, and then two one. So yeah, not great, <laughs> not great um, for this particular version. I think I went one and four. Spitefully played it out in the O four bracket to get that win on the board against a, a goblin deck, <laughs> but it just wasn't quite powerful enough. It wasn't that I wasn't able to do the thing. I did the thing. I did all the things that we just talked about, but they yeah. just weren't powerful enough. What it came down to was that anytime you're casting Charming Prince, anytime you're casting Humble Defector, the mana you spend is it's just not enough for the return. So you're already just putting yourself behind and falling behind for a couple turns to do this stuff. And then what's my payoff? My payoff is drawing extra cards, but often at the cost of then like putting myself even further behind. If I have to sacrifice a Defector or give it away... I'm just like taking on this huge deficit and the overall card quality that I'm drawing with all these cards is like not enough to make up for that. I had games where I did all that, drew a bunch of cards, discard to hand size even, and just like, didn't have <laughs> enough firepower left to actually take control of the board and, and win the game. I think for similar reasons, right? Like Butcher of the Horde just never delivered. I, I almost never had multiple things in play that I was happy to sacrifice. I would usually play it, look at my one creature and be like, I really don't want to sacrifice this. <laughs> like, I really would love to have haste, but um, I just don't have enough leftover material. Like the, the build is like barely hanging together. There's just not, a, there's not an excess. There's not an abundance. And I think butcher of the horde requires an abundance. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we understand all the, well, we, I, I made these decisions. I will, you know, own them. <laughs> um, you know, you start with Humble Defector, Charming Prince, and then, like, exactly like you said, Extraction Specialist is good with both, and then we want other cards that are good with Humble Defector, you know, so then I went down to claim the Firstborn, and then I was like, if I'm going to claim the Firstborn, I should probably have Village Rights. If I have Village Rights, I want more creatures, so I should probably play Young Pyromancer, which also works with Extraction Specialist. And it seems like we made a bunch of, like, gated decisions that uh, ended up in a place where the deck is very poor. <laughs> Yeah, so it's partly that. I mean, the way that it is constructed, it successfully does what it tries to do. Then you actually get into the queues and you realize that in Pioneer, other players don't care about this queue plan. Like, they're just going to kill you. Mono Blue Spirits, Boros Heroic twice in a row. They're just going to run you over. And if, if I want to draw cards while they're doing so, like, they don't really care. Blue White Control on the other end of the spectrum, also, I lost that 02. Like, they let me draw cards. And they just drew more cards than me. Like they, they stuck a planeswalker in that was worth more than everything I had done up to that point in the game. So I find myself like a little bit caught in the caught in the middle and working hard to do a cool thing that just in the end wasn't quite powerful enough. Yeah, I mean it might it might just be that it's not there or it's like missing one other card. 
But you know, I, I do have a strange love for Humble Defector, so I, I will continue my uh, my journey to the center of the earth with this guy. Oh, Extraction Specialist was a huge all star. I should mention that. Like the, the games yeah. that I won were the games where I drew like multiple specialists, and there you feel like you're actually pulling way ahead. So that was impressive. Yeah, Ext- Extraction Specialist is a super underrated card. Like it, it is, it is maybe the best white three drop in the entire format, I believe. All right, so let's end on a higher note. Last deck here. All right, uh, let me pull it up. At the very beginning of Pioneer, Aspiring Spike, who now mostly brews in Modern, had outlined a shell which had Karn's Great Creator, Fires of Invention, Ugin's Nexus, ways to sacrifice it, but when Ugin's Nexus is sacrificed, it exiles itself from your graveyard. So you could, like, Karn, minus two, find the one Ugin's Nexus from your sideboard with Fires in play, play it. Next turn, find a way to sacrifice it. Minus two Karn, get that same Ugin's Nexus because it went into exile, and then sacrifice it again. Because you were playing Fires of Invention, you had to play tons of land sources. You had to play ways to accelerate lands into play to kind of get this to happen. I had picked up a modified, or I had modified that version, I don't know what it was, three or four months ago now. I, I kind of lose track. Maybe, maybe longer. And had played to a 4-1 and then picked it up like a couple months after that and like 1-4 drop. Oh, three drop like i'd had no luck with it and what i've really found lately is these fires lists really flood it's just so frustrating to flood with these fire lists so i was thinking to myself why not just play a bunch of sacrifice effects for the artifact and just go all let's play for ugin's nexus because you don't need to take all the turns like what would happen with the karn thing is i'd have all these turns and my opponent would just give up i mean the game's over so why not just play all these sacrifice effects with ugin's nexus and but get to play real interaction now the full boat of Thought season push. And Ugin's Nexus, if you have enough sac effects, is literally a five mana time warp in this format, if, if we can squint a little bit. And it gives you fodder for your sacrifice effects if you if you have them in, in your deck. So my list is four fatal push, four thoughts, two voltage surge. That's an artifact sac effect. Two prosperous innkeeper, two sylvan carry added, four blood tithe harvester, two deadly dispute. That's a sacrifice effect. Sahili Sublime Artificer, that works with Ugin's Nexus in a complicated way. Hmm. Four Vraska, Queen, Golgari Queen, she is a sacrifice effect. And then three Korvald, four Ugin's Nexus. So basically like a faux ramp list with a little bit of interaction. We're trying to get to five mana, play Ugin's Nexus. If you play Korvald, it's like a five mana 6-6 six, six that draws two cards and takes an extra turn or something like that. Uh, and that's normally enough, like... The extra turns you get matter a lot because Fable is like a Planeswalker, kind of, when you get to take the extra turn. Vraska keeps ticking up, uh, and Korvald has an effect that keeps happening, right, every turn for no mana. So these extra turns, you kind of get to take the extra turn as if there's Planeswalkers in play. You're getting a lot more than just, you know, the Explore effect to draw an extra card and play an extra land. So you've seeded throughout the deck one, two, three, four, eight, looks like 12 effects that sacrifice the Ugin's Nexus. But none of those cards are bad per se, right? The Volta Surge is, is fine removal. Deadly Spute's good. Vraska is having a moment right now in Pioneer. You know, there's a variant of the Mono Green Devotion that's just splashing for four copies of Vraska and positioned really well. And of course, Corvold, All Star. We haven't gone too far out of our way to include these effects. And then we just have the four Ukins Nexus that, you know, if you draw one, you draw one. And it's a time warp. Yeah, exactly. So that was the thought process. So jumped in the league, 
Uh, was quickly at 3-0. I was like, man, this list is sweet. Like, I am cruising through this league. It'd be so sweet to 5-0. Played Mono Blue Spirits. Actually drew good hands in both games, honestly. I drew really good hands in both games and just lost. It just sucks so bad that if they just draw, they they never flood. It's, it's maddening. Then I played Mono Green again, which I had beaten my first match very easily 2-0. I flooded out in the third game from way ahead. Uh, they were able to steal the, the last game. So only finished 3-2. Kind of a disappointing finish considering where I started. Um, the list did feel really good though. You can tell that I'm not 100% sure on some of the numbers. Like two Prosperous Innkeeper, two Sylvan Carry added. Sometimes one was better than the other. Sometimes the other would have been better. The thought process was just Prosperous Innkeeper gives me more material to sacrifice to Deadly Dispute and Vraska and Korvald. And even just having a treasure lying around when you play Korvald and then sack it for something else is really good. I also just wanted there to be more stuff to turn Fatal Push on. Uh, so I don't know what's better there. The Sahili was sweet one time. So just so people understand, when you play Ugin's Nexus, if Sahili's in play, you get a 1-1. You can make the 1-1 a copy of the Ugin's Nexus, and then it's you have to sacrifice one. The problem is that Ugin's Nexus has text that says if a player would begin an extra turn, skip that turn. So you actually don't get to keep the the real Ugin's Nexus. You have to sack that one, and then the, the token will become a 1-1 one, one at the end of turn. Oh. Unless you have another sack effect. So I was able to do that once where I Sahilied, cast Ugin's Nexus, got to actually keep the real Ugin's Nexus, and then sack it to Deadly Dispute. So that's two turns in a row, um, which is just absolutely insane. So just to make sure I understand you, Yep. You sacrifice one Ugin's Nexus, and that says, hey, you get an extra turn when this turn is over, and that means you yes. have until the end of this turn to get rid of the second Ugin's Nexus. Exactly, because at the start of your n- next turn, it checks if this is an extra turn, and if an Ugin's Nexus is in play, it won't let you take that extra turn. So you have to make sure that the real Ugin's Nexus is gone. So you can do that by either choosing to sacrifice it when it tries to legend rule itself, or you, if you have a uh, another sack effect, Vraska or Deadly Dispute or Voltage Surge or, or a Core Vault attack, you can choose to actually keep the real Ugin's Nexus, lose the token, and then sack the Nexus itself. Then you get two turns. That's so tricky. I like that. <laughs> yeah, so I actually did that, and then I happened to draw another Nexus uh, on one of those turns. So I took five turns in a row against a mono green <laughs> opponent. And so, like, they're playing Vraska, you know, they're trying to do Vraska stuff. Like, my Vraska is just so much better than them. It's not even close. Uh, you know, stealing my, like, three-year-old Vraska tech is embarrassing. Mono green, come on. You're you're not even... <laughs> now, I'm not exactly sure what I would do to improve the deck. Maybe it just needs to be more all-in on ramping to Ugin's Nexus. Um, and, like, have more Prosperous Innkeepers and Sylvan Caryatids. And maybe, like, not even play the Sahili. Because um, what I was finding is, at the end... I just want to get Ugin's Nexus in play and start taking turns. That's all I want to do. Blood Tithe Harvester is an absolutely insane card in this list. It blocks. It's a pseudo-removal spell. It makes a blood, which is fine to sacrifice to Vraska. It makes a blood, which is an insane card to sacrifice to Korvald. And if you have an Ugin's Nexus to sacrifice to Korvald, you just sack the blood to just draw a card with Ugin before you loot. I mean, it, it it's, it's just a crazy, crazy card. Yeah, it seems like the synergies are there. There's probably some unanswered questions in the build, right? Two disputes, two surge, two carried, two innkeeper. I mean, I know we need a bigger sample size, but I feel like one of those has got to be better than the other. Yeah, the other thing I was thinking is there's a red-black uh, legend that makes a treasure as well when it comes into play. That might just be better than innkeeper. 
Oh, Colleen, reclusive painter. Yeah, or as a one of. You know, there's a lot of options. I don't know that you need the Sahili. I think I board it out in literally every game because um, it is so reactive. At the same time, I want to make sure I had enough fodder for Vraska. So the only thing I'm sure of is four Fable, four Vraska, four Ugin's Exus, three Corvold, four Blood Tithe, and then the eight one man removal spells. But after that, like. How many Voltage Surges, Deadly Disputes, Prosperous Innkeeper, Carry Added, Sahili? Do you need 24 land if you're playing a bunch of ramp? I don't think you want all the cycling land. I, that was never valuable. Yeah, there, there's a bunch of different ways you can go with this. Maybe you want to play Tracker. That makes a bunch of permanence because we do we are playing some Fable Passages. I'm, I'm open to a lot of different ideas. You didn't miss the Fires of Invention, right? So th- there was no floating issues. But did you miss Karn, the Great Creator? No, Karn sucks. Unless you're mono green and you just have infinite mana, Karn is not good. I, I, do, I do not believe that it's very good at all. It happens to be good against me because <laughs> I have a shit ton of treasures in play, but against everybody else. Like, mono green played Karn against me multiple times. I just attacked it with Blood Tithe Harvester and it died. <laughs> like, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> That's a little spoiler from the Dominaria United story that came out. <laughs> Karn's going through a rough time. So anyway, I guess as a proof of concept, this was very real. I felt heavily favored against Green. I did not play the real blue-red list, but against Prowess, I went 2-0. So it's, you know, we're, we're, we're well-suited against aggro. Um, and again, we're playing a five-mana card that cannot be killed by four damage. So that inherently makes you better in the mid-range matchups. You're just going to dominate red-black. Um, but then can you beat Spirits? Probably need to dedicate multiple sideboard slots to, to do so. Other than that, it felt really good. Yeah. Like, what is your all time record against any flavor of spirits is like two and 30 at this point? Yeah. I'd say my mono blue spirits record is way, way worse. Cause again, it's really hard for them to stop Corvald in Bant because everything stops at four. So, like, resolving Corvald just beats Bant spirits. That's the thing that's maddening. Cards that are good against blue spirits are not good against bant spirits and vice versa. So it's like you have these two flavors of spirits that like can't be beaten by the same cards. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just never beat a spirits deck. This is known. This is established at this point. Casting five mana spells against uh, spell quellers is awesome. Like you're, you're going to win a game where you cast Corvald in game one against spell queller. But you'll never resolve Corvald against mono blue. So it's like... <laughs> yeah. It's stupid. I hate spirits. At the same time, they're they're a good police. Like they're really, really, really good against blue white and lotus field. So they they serve an important role. The fact that they're good against me, it's like you can't yuck somebody else's yum. Yeah, and whatever happens, at least we beat Jund. That's the running theme over three years of Faith is Brewing. We yeah, we beat Jund. We just absolutely leave a smoldering crater. And then the, those are always the people that ran. Like, oh man, I got beat by this. It's like, yep, you got smoked by it. It wasn't close. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David. Well, always a pleasure to hear how these brews <laughs> perform on the field of battle when we actually take them out to play. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I mean, these are all shells that nobody's playing with right so there's still a lot of work to be done in pioneer i don't think this format is solved at all i am i have very good records again not counting spirits but against a bunch of other decks you know i think i'm like eight and two against mono green in my last 10 matches i've been playing a bunch of different decks they're not even main deck in graveyard hate that can beat blue red so yeah you don't have to just play tier one decks in pioneer to, to have success i guess that's the, the main point i'm playing you know 
main deck for Ugin's Nexus. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff you can do in this format if if you make a few allowances. <laughs> well said. All right, so I think that's going to do it for us for today. Next week we are going to be diving into Dominaria United spoilers. Finally, looking forward to that, and we'll see you next time. All right, take care, sir. Decklist for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time for part one of our Dominaria United full set review. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.